Well, today we are going to have our 10th and final message in our series that we're calling Why We Come to Church. And when I started this series, I wasn't sure how um, many sermons I was going to preach, and you weren't either, and you were probably wondering every week, well, what is he going to talk about next? And I was wondering the same thing, and uh, just kind of went with it this summer and um, have been very encouraged and blessed just by some of the response uh, that I've got, some of the encouragement I've gotten from you, uh, from our elders and others uh, who just uh, have told me different ways that they've been encouraged and challenged and even just stirred up by way of reminder. I don't know that we're, uh, any of us are hearing anything new, um, but it's always good to go back to the basics, isn't it? And uh, I wanted to just share with you one very encouraging result or um, maybe application uh, of, of, uh, this, uh, of, this, of this series so far. Um, uh, two weeks ago, I preached on the subject of giving, that this is an act of worship that should be a part of our weekly service that we sing. And we wouldn't think about, well, I'm just not going to sing this summer or this, this Sunday, or I'm not going to pray this Sunday, or I'm not going uh, to fellowship this Sunday, I'm not going to listen this Sunday, um, I'm not going to take communion when we take, right? Well, these are all things that we just do. It's just all, these are all sacred activities that we participate in on a weekly basis. And one of those is giving. God intended it to be an act of worship. And I would even say as strongly that I think it should be part of our weekly um, worship of the Lord. And so we talked about that last couple weeks ago, and I mentioned to you that I had been um, disappointed and shocked when I found out uh, through our financial team that there, there had only been for a couple of Sundays like uh, 30 giving units, if you will, not knowing what they were, but just simply knowing that there was 30 contributions made. And I thought of a church of 180 families or so, only 30 of those families are, are giving on a regular basis. That was um, disappointing and, and frankly shocking because um, I guess I just assume and maybe it's just how we were raised or maybe our background, but I just grew up in church as I told you in the past and uh, I watched from a little kid, watched my parents put money in the offering plate and then it was when I got old enough to do that, I started doing that too and it's just, it's just what you do. It's just like I, I guess I assumed everybody knows that and everybody does that and I have to remember as a pastor, don't assume anything, Right. And so uh, it's always good for us just to go back to the Word and say, hey, what does the Bible say? And uh, let's try to line our lives up as closely with the Scriptures as possible. Well, last Sunday, uh, we had twice as many givers. Um, uh, Somebody told me there was uh, over 60 givers last Sunday. And uh, I was like, praise God. That's the Word accomplishing its work in those of us who believe. That's the way it's supposed to work. You preach a message, the Word goes out. And it, and it begins to make an impact in people's lives, and people begin to change and grow. And uh, that was just a very tangible uh, application, I thought, of what we're learning together about why we come to church. So thank you for uh, being good listeners, and not just hearing the message, being hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. And so not only did you apply the message on giving, you applied the message on hearing and listening and not just hearing but obeying and putting into practice the things we learn and changing as a result of uh, what we uh, learn from the Scriptures together. I was also very blessed by uh, an email this week that uh, someone was just saying how um, challenged they were by last Sunday's message about listening and how they've heard so many sermons 
here at Lakeside, and they have all these, all these application questions you know, stored up. They're kind of a pack rat, and they kind of hoard them all. And, and, uh, but uh, how much uh, have they really been going through those diligently and, and really trying to apply the messages? And they were just expressing their gratitude for the word being preached, but also their desire to want to do a better job of putting into practice uh, the messages. And, and it was just such an encouragement to my heart. At least somebody's out there listening and uh, that they're wanting to change and grow and to be more conformed to the image of Christ. So um, thank you for being an encouragement to my heart this week. And, um, and so I thought uh, this would be a good time to wrap this series up. Now, I will say this, that this is the last official message I'm planning, um, but I am planning to, to preach a message next Sunday that I trust will be an afterword or a, an appendix or a pen, an addendum to this series that I, I think you'll find helpful and, and, um, and practical. And so uh, that'll be more like something we'll tack on at the end. But this morning, I just want to conclude our series by addressing the ultimate reason why we come to church. And it may sound very ironic, but we come to church to leave. We come to church to leave. And I mentioned a few weeks ago this this biblical process that we are trying to implement here at Lakeside Bible Church, which is we gather to grow to what? To go. And and if you don't remember anything else from this series, if, if you just remember those three words, gather, grow, go. Gather, grow, go. That's what we're trying to accomplish here by the grace of God at Lakeside Bible Church. We're gathering together so we can grow together and so we can ultimately go together out into this community, out into our world and make an impact for Jesus Christ. I told you I've been reading a little book um, by Tony Payne called um, How to Walk into Church. And uh, he brilliantly concluded his book with a chapter called How to Walk Out of Church. And I think any series on why we come to church would be incomplete if we didn't talk about what we're supposed to do after we come to church. In other words, how should we leave church? How should we leave here? And I think we should leave here every Sunday encouraged and better equipped to go back out into the world, not only to live for Christ, but also to tell others about Christ from Monday to Saturday. We gather to be edified and we scatter to evangelize. That was the clear pattern of the early church as they, as they sought to fulfill the great commission that Christ had left them. That they would, they would gather to be edified. And you see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. You don't see anything about evangelism during the corporate gathering of the body. Uh, that wasn't necessarily the priority of their gatherings. Um, they, they were devoted, what? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to, to what? Tell me, because I'm forgetting it. The apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, and fellowship, right? Those were the things that they were doing. They were spending time together. That's what they did together. But as soon as they left church, they became evangelistic machines. And people were coming to Christ all over the place through their witness, through their uh, gospel presentation, 
And so we see the early church enthusiastically and courageously proclaiming the good news of salvation through Christ everywhere they went and with everyone they met. And they simply did what Christ had told them to do from the very first sermon he preached to the very last sermon that he preached. I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount to the Great Commission, really the bookends of Christ's ministry. And again, I want to this morning just look at some passages, and I trust that uh, passages that we've looked at before, but that, again, will be stirred up by way of reminder. And so let's turn, first of all, to Matthew chapter 5. And this should be very familiar uh, because just uh, two summers ago, we had a little series uh, called Salt of the Earth. And it was based on uh, Jesus' exhortation in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He said, you are the salt of the earth, talking to his disciples, his followers, but if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And then he went on, he said, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus used this, this very basic analogy of salt and light to illustrate the function, the purpose that his followers were to serve in this world. And in short, our purpose is to influence and impact the world. Jesus never intended for us to isolate ourselves from the world, but to infiltrate the world with the truth of the gospel. He doesn't want us just to congregate together here on Sunday mornings or within the four walls of this church, but he wants us to permeate the world around us. He never intended the church just to be a holy huddle. And that was it. That was it. We played the game. It's over. No. He wants us to get out of here. And I, I mentioned in that series two summers ago, uh, I made reference to what I would call the salt shaker syndrome. The salt shaker syndrome. And, and, and what, what I meant by that is that the church is like a, a salt shaker and Christians are like the grains of salt. And as long as we stay within the safety of the salt shaker, we fail to fulfill the purpose for why we're still here on this earth. I mean, salt is no good unless you do what? You take it and you go like this, right? And you sprinkle it on your food, and then it's serving its purpose. But if it just stays in that canister or that jar, it's useless. It's good for nothing. And so are we, if we just stay within the, the, the salt shaker of the church, if you will, we're, we're useless. We're good for nothing. We've lost our purpose for existence. We should be thrown out. Uh, the Bible talks about, uh, you know, the idea that when salt loses its saltiness, it should be thrown away. We have an expression in our culture, not worth is salt. And so if we're not an evangelistic church, then we're not worth our salt. It's, I guess, another good analogy might be the Dead Sea. When you think about the Dead Sea, uh, it's the, the one body of water on this planet that has the highest concentration of salt. Why? Because the Jordan River flows into it and there's no outlet. And so it just sits there and it stagnates. And that's what happens to churches when they just become a, a dead sea, if you will. They, there's no outlet. They're just, everything's just coming and it's just like a cul-de-sac and we just stay here and, and we never get to the, you know, the come full circle, as you say. We come here, we gather to grow, to go. Sometimes it just stops at the gathering 
nobody grows. Sometimes it stops at the growing. Everybody's gathering and they're growing, but nobody's going, right? You've got to have all three uh, at work at all times. And so God's goal for us as Christians is to come to church, to be edified, to be equipped, and then pour out of here like a big salt shaker, if you will, to impact the world around us. Now, regarding his followers being the light of the world, Christ wanted his church to be a lighthouse, not a clubhouse, which sadly is what some churches have become. Years ago, I came across a a well-known story of the life-saving station. Uh, You may have heard of this, uh, read it yourself, but let me just read it for us this morning uh, because every time I read it, it it's very convicting uh, to think about and especially comparing the story to our experience as a church. The story goes like this. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a life-saving station. The The building was just a hut and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for their safety, they went out day and night tirelessly rescuing the lost. Many lives were saved, so the station became famous. Some of those who were saved, along with others in the surrounding area, wanted to become associated with the station. They gave of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, and the life-saving station grew. Some of the members were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided, so they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in a new, larger building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering, gathering place for its members. They decorated it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Few members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the shipwrecked victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the life-saving activity because they thought it was a hindrance and unpleasant to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still a life-saving station after all. They were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of various kinds of people shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old It evolved into a club, and another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent, but most of the people drown. It's a sobering analogy, isn't it? And I think this is a tragic but all-too-true tale of the historical progression of too many churches today. They start out with the right focus, but over time they lose sight of the primary purpose. And, and it's very easy to do that. It's, it's easy to lose sight of our mission as a church. If I asked you the question, what is the mission of the church? What is the goal of the church? Why do we exist as a church? What, what is the main thing that we're supposed to be doing as, as a body of believers in Jesus Christ? Well, let's look at some more verses together and see if we can come up with a biblical 
answer to that question or those questions. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20 is the Great Commission. Very familiar to you, I'm sure. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Again, Jesus commanding his disciples, listen guys, I'm passing my ministry off to you. I'm about to go back to heaven. And this is what I want you to do. This is your first priority. This is your main task. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The implication there that people are getting saved, people are coming to know Christ, and then teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Uh, the idea there is you're discipling them, you're, you're helping them grow in Christ as well. We're very familiar with M- Matthew's account of the Great Commission. We're not so familiar with Luke's account of the Great Commission. Turn over there with me for a moment. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Luke provides an expanded version of the Great Commission, if you will. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Jesus has resurrected from the dead and he has now appeared to his disciples Uh, most likely in the upper room at this point. And he says this in verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So they were still trying to figure all this out, and it wasn't making any sense to them. He says, Hey guys, listen, I'm just fulfilling all the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And he he granted them insight and illumination to understand the Old Testament scriptures. And he said to them, verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, what did he just share with the disciples? What do we call that today? The gospel. That was the gospel message that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so he basically said, guys, this is the message that you need to proclaim. This is the message that you need to preach. I came, I lived, I died, I rose again from the dead, and now if people are willing to repent of their sin, they can be forgiven. And you need to go to all the nations, starting here in Jerusalem. And then he said in verse 48, you are, what? What does it say there? Witnesses of these things. They were literally, by the way, eyewitnesses of these things. You're witnesses of these things. And it's your job to communicate those. What is the job of a witness in in a legal case? They simply testify to what they've seen, to what they've heard, what they experienced. And yeah, sure, sitting on the witness stand is a, could be a pretty threatening or intimidating experience, but all you have to do is tell them the truth. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what happened. And that's our role. We, too, are witnesses of these things. 
But let's not miss verse 49. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. Anybody know what that is? The Holy Spirit, right? He's already promised that over and over again in the book of John that he was going to send a helper. He says, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And obviously this was a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Jesus never expected these men to fulfill this commission in their own wisdom, their own strength. They needed divine help. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a good reminder for us. This is not about, hey, let's all get out there and try harder and be better evangelists. And No, listen, we need to be impassioned by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these things. We can't do it on our own. We don't have the wisdom or power ourselves. Now, with that in in mind, turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And again, a very familiar verse, but Luke wrote, obviously, the Gospel of Luke, which was Jesus part 1. Acts is really Jesus part 2. It's the sequel to his Gospel. And he wrote uh, the book of Acts and um, he provides a, a, a connection here, kind of a stitch. He stitches the two, his two works together, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He stitches them together by essentially repeating himself what he said already in, chapter, or in Luke chapter 24, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, the disciples saying, Lord, is it this, at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epics with the which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my what? My witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So again, Jesus is expanding now upon this idea of them being witnesses that they need to wait. Don't, don't, don't. Time out, guys. Right? You got to wait for the Holy Spirit. He'll empower you, but when he does, I want you to begin witnessing and being witnesses and and, and communicating the gospel starting in Jerusalem and then the surrounding region of Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And so Luke goes on here in the book of Acts to record how this motley crew of scared, bewildered followers of Christ were totally transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit into this bold, focused, evangelistic force that took the message of salvation to the remotest part of the earth. They literally turned the world upside down with the gospel. That's what it says in Acts chapter 17. And so Jesus allowed them to experience all that they had experienced, not so they could just sit around in the upper room and for the rest of their lives saying, wow, that was so cool. I'm so glad we got to see that and, and hear that. No, so they could tell people, others, tell others what they had seen and heard. It wasn't supposed to stay in the upper room. It was to permeate the world, to permeate society. And so the entire book of Acts just pulsates 
with a passion for evangelism. And, and in this, these opening verses here, the heartbeat of evangelism begins to beat, and chapter by chapter it beats faster and louder and stronger. And as the gospel just radiates from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the remotest part of the earth, and, and you get to the end of the book of Acts, and, and it climaxes with Paul, who was the witness to the Gentiles, he was under house arrest in Rome as a result of his, of his radical, relentless, evangelistic efforts reaching Gentiles with the gospel. But by then, the church of Jesus Christ had become unstoppable. And I love the way the book of Acts ends it. It's really kind of, un-o- it leaves it open-ended. Acts chapter 28, verse 30, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And that's it. That's the end of the book of Acts, but that's not the end of the story of the great acts of the Holy Spirit through his people, through, his, through Christ's followers. There's a ministry uh, that was started several years back called Acts 29. And you might think, whoa, Acts 29, they, somebody doesn't know their Bible very well, there's only, only, Acts only goes to 28. What's Acts 29? Well, what do you think Acts 29 is? The idea is, guess what? The work that God was accomplishing through the church in the book of Acts is still going on today. And we are living in chapter 29 of the book of Acts. And uh, this particular ministry is a church planning ministry, and their goal is to plant as many churches uh, around the world as possible and follow the pattern of the book of Acts where uh, the apostles would go into a city and preach the gospel and people would get saved and they'd gather them together and they'd begin meeting as a church and they'd appoint elders and then they would leave, right, and go on to the next city and start another church. And ultimately, that's what, that's what God is looking for, is not so much converts as he is churches. And so that's, uh, I love the heart of that, that ministry. One commentator, just talking about the, the entire flow of the book of Acts, said this in his commentary called You Are My Witnesses. He says, quote, it is, a strike, it is striking how the evangelistic impulse Burst from every page of Acts. The church marched across the ancient world on a powerful wave of enthusiasm for Jesus Christ. The recapture of this open-faced, unashamed, and self-sacrificial love for Jesus and for lost men and women is surely the most pressing need for everyone who professes to be a Christian. He says, the message of our day could not be clearer. We too, for, the message for our day could not be clearer. We too have a world to win for Christ. We too must reap or our world will perish. And uh, several years ago, I guess it was back in 2008, that I taught through the book of Acts. And the main reason why I chose to teach through the book of Acts at the time is because I felt like our greatest weakness as a church was we lacked that evangelistic zeal and that evangelistic effort. And I thought, what better book of the Bible to stir us up, pump us up, give us an example, a model um, of how we should be as a church than to go through the book of Acts and to see that, that passion. The, the, the point is this, how can we, 
How could we come to church every Sunday and enjoy the blessings of the gospel without being burdened for the lost and want to share with them the beauty of the gospel? How is that possible? Think about Jesus and the, the burden, the passion, the compassion that he had for lost people. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, talking of Christ here, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed, they were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And in the very next chapter, he was setting his disciples up, by the way. He's like, hey, guys, you need to pray that God would raise up harvesters. And in the very next verse, it says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And he sent them out to be those harvesters. I'll never forget the, the story I read about Martin Luther and one of his close friends. And uh, they had made a decision that, that Martin Luther would be the one out on the front lines. He would go out and be, be evangelizing and preaching and teaching that his friend would stay home and support him in prayer. And he would be kind of the closet support. And, and he would be on his knees praying for, for Martin Luther and praying for lost souls and praying for people to be saved. And, and, and after uh, months of, of doing this, uh, Luther's friend came to him and says, man, I can't stay in the closet anymore. I got to help. How, what can I do? I got to, because why he prayed, and as he prayed for the harvest, the natural answer to that prayer was he became a harvester himself. And so having a burden for the law starts through prayer. You see, man, I, I'm just not, I'm not passionate for lost people. Well, when's the last time you prayed that God would give you Christ's heart for the lost. When's the last time you actually prayed for a lost coworker, a, la- a lost classmate, a last lost roommate, a lost family member, a lost neighbor? Right, that that'll stir your heart up for the lost when you pray for them. Well, we're not only harvesters; we're also ambassadors. Again, just looking at the New Testament. Uh, and seeing some of these, just plucking out some of these key texts on evangelism, and, and just it, it was just part of the the the, the ebb and flow of, of of the New Testament and of the early church. This was just part and parcel of who they were and what they did. And in Second Corinthians chapter five, Second Corinthians chapter five, verse eighteen, Paul is talking uh, to the Corinthians and. Reminding them that they're new creatures in Christ. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. He says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's like God reconciles you to him through Christ and says, oh, by the way, now you're part of the team. You're part of the reconciliation team. You've been reconciled. Now you can help us be used by me. God's saying used by me to help reconcile others to me. Verse 19, namely, what is the ministry of reconciliation? Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Again, Paul's just sharing in a a nutshell the gospel. That's the gospel. That, That God 
in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against him. And guess what? He's committed to us that message, that good news, that you can be reconciled to God, that you can have your, your sins forgiven, that God won't hold your sins against you. I know a pastor friend who was on an airplane one time and somebody asked him, as typically happens on an airplane, you sit down next to him and say, hey, how you doing? Well, you know, whatever, whatever, where are you from? Where are you going? What do you do for a living, right? Well, this pastor that this one time thought he'd capitalize on that question. What do you do for a living? And instead of just saying, well, I'm a pastor, he said, he said I have the distinct privilege of telling people how they can be forgiven for their sins. Well, that's like a get into the gospel right away kind of answer, right? But that's what we're, all of us could say, what do you do for a living? I have the tremendous joy and privilege of telling people how they can have their sins forgiven through what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross. So we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We ha- God has committed to us the word of reconciliation, verse 20, therefore, in light of that, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. What a great analogy there. When you think of a, a U.S. ambassador, what is his role? He goes to a foreign country and he's the liaison. He speaks on behalf of the government of the United States and he makes contact with people and, and, he, and, he, and he, he, he does whatever he has to do as an ambassador, right? but he's communicating on behalf of, of, of the nation uh, of uh, you know, the U.S. And so we, what are we? We're ambassadors. We speak on behalf of God. We're his ambassador. We're, we're Christ's ambassador. We're speaking on his behalf. We're telling others what he wants them to hear, what he wants them to know. And notice it says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. It's as if God was using our mouth to appeal to lost people. That's that's a powerful thought. That when we open our mouth and we're sharing the gospel, it's it's not us talking, it's God. In the same way we talked about last week, that when a a preacher gets up and and, and exposits the the scriptures, it's not him talking, it's God talking, if he's preaching the word, right? And, And even as God told Jeremiah, I will put my words in your mouth, it applies to you as an evangelist. When you're evangelizing, when you're sharing Christ, that God's putting his words in your mouth, you're not just making up stuff, you're hopefully using the word. You're quoting scripture, you're reading the text, you're saying, hey, look what the Bible says, and, and you're sharing the gospel, and, and so it's God's word in you. He's making the appeal through you, and he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Even in the midst of him teaching the Corinthians about their role as ambassadors, and their, their role in the ministry of reconciliation, he appeals, he begs them to be reconciled to God. And I would be remiss if I didn't do the same thing this morning. Here I am teaching a message uh, about being reconciled to God and didn't say, hey, if you're here this morning and you've yet to be reconciled to God and your sins uh, are not forgiven, then today I beg you to be reconciled to God. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And trust me, whatever you're waiting for, whatever you're holding out for, listen, this is worth it. This is worth it. 
There's nothing that you'll ever give up to follow Christ that you won't be restored a hundredfold. Jesus is far better. And so we're seeing here in the New Testament, we have this, this glorious privilege, but at the same time, this awesome responsibility of telling people how they can be reconciled to God through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we see over and over again that one of the distinctives of the churches that you read in the, about in the New Testament, they, they have this evangelistic zeal and they made this, this, this impact with the gospel on the world around them. Let's look at one example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. The Thessalonians were good examples for a lot of things. We looked at them last week to see how they were an example of, of good listeners, right? That they, when they heard Paul preach, they didn't receive it as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God. But notice before that, in, in, in chapter 1, Paul is listing all the reasons he's thankful to God for these, uh, this dynamic church, this dynamic group of believers that had been uh, saved in the, in the city of Thessalonica, and they were meeting together as a church. Notice what it says in verse 8. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Again, that's the gospel. Their lives were transformed, radically changed through the gospel. And the word was getting out. That, that expression the word of the Lord has sounded forth. It's, that, that's the word from which we get our English word echo. And so like a, a clap of thunder or, or a trumpet blast that just reverberates and all over the place. That, that gunshot, you hear the gunshot and it just kind of echoes through the forest, reverberates. That's the idea here. That the word of God was was powerfully trumpeting forth from this church to the entire surrounding area. Now granted, the church was in a strategic location for reaching a lot of people. Thessalonica was, a, was the capital city of, of Macedonia and it was a prominent seaport that was situated on the main road leading from Rome to the east. And so this, this provided them unprecedented opportunity to, to reach people locally and, and uh, nationally and even internationally. But I think the real reason for their worldwide impact was not their location. It was that everyone in the church had a passion to penetrate the world around them with this life-changing message of God's Word. Their, their lives had been radically changed. And so they wanted to tell other people how their lives could be changed as well. And so they were all enthusiastically involved in telling others about Christ and it made a dynamic impact, not just in their own city, but all over the place. In fact, Paul said, your testimony spread so fast and so far, I can't even keep up with it. 
No matter where he went, he never had to tell anybody about, hey, did you hear about what's going on in, in the church of Thessalonica or what God's doing there? Because everybody, everybody had talked about, they were talking about it. They already knew about it. You could say that the Thessalonican church was the talk of the town. It was the talk of the town, what God was doing over there. And I think this is the model for our church, for any church for that matter. That all of us, everyone, not just the pastoral staff, not just the elders, not just a few people who have the gift of evangelism, who aren't scared to hand someone a track or... No, this is everyone. Everyone at this church should be excited about sharing the truth of God's word with other people so that no matter where you are or who you talk to in the Lake Conroe area, people say, oh, wait a minute, Lakes, I've heard of you guys. In fact, I just was talking to somebody from your church the other day, and they were telling me about Jesus. So you don't have to go any further, okay? I already heard it once this week, all right? The point is that we're getting around. And uh, people are hearing that there's exciting things happening at this church and people's lives are being radically transformed by the gospel. That's what they need to hear. And so we too should be the talk of the town, if you will, to the glory of God. And as we're faithful in reaching our Jerusalem, if you will, here in Montgomery... God will provide us with greater opportunities to reach out nationally and internationally. So let me ask you a couple of quick questions here. Are you excited about impacting our community for Christ? Does that excite you? About impacting our community for Christ? Is the word of God echoing forth from your life? Is it coming out of your mouth? Are you sharing the gospel with your family your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates. This is a this is a vital key to to any healthy growing church is people who have a passion for reaching others with the gospel. We need to never forget this is why we exist. This is the ultimate mission of our church. We've got a, our, our, our um, mission statement on the wall there in, in uh, our, our welcome center. Hopefully you, you see that every time you walk in the doors. Hopefully some of you even know it by heart. But our mission is simply stated this way. We exist to glorify God by proclaiming and living the truth of his word so that others will come to know Jesus Christ and grow to become like him. That's the mission of our church. That's our mission statement. And that's just trying to take all these verses and, and pull them together and say, okay, what is our mission? What, what do we need to remember? What's the main thing we need to be remembering all the time? Let's put it somewhere so we don't forget. And so everything we do is to further that great end. And so we can't lose sight of this goal. We must never be content to just sit around worshiping and fellowshipping and studying God's word t- together. Why? Because being a part of a church is, is more than just doing those things with fellow followers of Christ. Yes, here we are. We got our holy huddle. Aren't we spiritual? It feels safe and cozy in here. But I would just say this, that if these things were the primary purpose of the church, then God would have taken us to heaven the moment we got saved. Why? Because we can do all those things better in heaven. 
What's he leaving us down here for to struggle and, you know, with all this stuff? Try to figure all this stuff out. I think there's one main reason why God allows us to remain here on this earth, and that's to carry on the mission for which his son came to earth, which was to seek and to save what? The lost. To seek and to save the lost. So singing praises to God, studying God's word, taking communion, serving and caring for one another, all of these are simply a means to what? A greater end. And while all these things are intrinsically important to the life of a a church, they're not the mission of the church, but they're the means by which we fulfill our mission. And we have to be careful that we don't become so overly preoccupied with the means that we forget the mission. It's not about the next Bible study. It's about what you learn in that Bible study that might transform your life and make you a better witness at work or at school or in your home, in your neighborhood. I think we can be guilty as a church of becoming so obsessed with the training part that we show very little interest in reaching the lost with the gospel. It's like a football team that's like, you know, driven to practice every day, and they're like, yeah, this is awesome. We just love to practice. This is, I'm, I'm into practice, and, and, and the coach is like, hey, you realize that all this is just for Friday night. Like, no, no, coach, we don't care about Friday night. We, care, we, don't, we just like to practice. Just come out here, make us sweat, make us run. We could care less about Friday night. No, it's all about Friday night. That practice is a means to a greater end. And so some, in some ways, if you think about it, when we come together, this is practice. We're, we're just practicing. The game's out there. The game's when we leave. That's when we play. We're just practicing. And so we get together on, on Sundays here, and it's like going to practice. It's like getting a pep talk to, to pump us up and prepare us to reach lost souls the rest of the week. We, again, we gather to be edified, to be built up and encouraged, and we scatter to evangelize. What you see throughout the New Testament is that the majority of the evangelism happened outside the four walls of the church building. More people got saved out there than they did in here. Through the witness, the corporate witness of the body. We were talking this week as a pastoral staff. We got to finally meet together, all four of us, for the first time. It was really fun. And we were just talking about the future and just kind of dreaming and planning and praying. And, and I was reminded of a question that I was asked years ago by a pastor that was very convicting. I've never forgotten it. And I just brought it up to the guys this week. And it was this question. If your church went out of existence... Would anyone in your community know, let alone care? If Lakeside Bible Church went out of existence tomorrow, would anybody in this community beyond us know or care? In other words, is our church making a noticeable impact in this community? Or do most people living around us don't even know we exist? We could apply this personally. If, 
If, if you were to move out of your neighborhood, would anybody know or care? If you were to get a job transfer and you no longer worked, would, you, would, would anybody know? Would anybody care? If you were to maybe stop going to the school you're going to, maybe you change schools or something, would anybody in your present school know or care? It's a good question to ask. How much of an impact are you making in people's lives around you? Well, we could look just quickly at one other passage. And let me just read this because we've talked about it, but it's a good reminder for us in First Peter. Peter takes all these Old Testament terms for the, for the nation of Israel. He applies them to the church. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 uh, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He's liking the church to Israel. He's not saying the church is Israel. The church hasn't replaced Israel. The point is, the church is doing Israel's job right now that Israel failed at. They were to be the witness nation. God raised them, chose them, and raised them up to witness to uh, all the other nations of the world that, that He is the one true God. and. And they failed. They, they got too much like the world. They were unholy. They were committing idolatry and immorality and intermarrying and inter- intermingling and they lost their distinction and so their witness was, was terrible. And so God raised up the church and said, now it's your job. You're my witness tool, my witnessing tool. And so he's likening us to Israel and then he says in verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love that. With great privilege comes great responsibility, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him. We are all these things. Why? So we can proclaim the heroics. That's the really what... He, Peter's saying the, the heroics of God, his, his power, his glory put on display in, in saving sinners like us, calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We get, to, we get to tell others about God's heroics. And guess what? We're exhibit A. Look at what he's done in my life. Look at how he's changed me. Look at how he's changing me. I'm not so much of a knucklehead like I used to be. You remember me when I was like then, but look at I'm totally different now. Why? How did that happen? That's Jesus. That's God's power in my life. I visited a number of churches over the years who are very intentional, who are very deliberate in reminding their people every week that they should be that as they leave, they need to be thinking about evangelism. Maybe, you've all, maybe you grew up in a church like this where over the, the, the door frames of the exits, they, they have a sign that says, you are now entering the mission field. Or a sign on the driveway as you leave the parking lot. You're now entering the mission field. What a great reminder that, yeah, okay, we just went to church. So What? We just spent an hour and a half together singing and praying and studying God's word and fellowshipping and so what? It's so we can hit the mission field for another week and make an impact with the gospel for the glory of God. Maybe one practical suggestion. 
had much more I wanted to share, but we'll just stop there. But just one practical suggestion. Again, I mentioned earlier that it all starts with prayer. And prayer, again, is, is acknowledging our dependence on the Lord. Lord, I don't have what I need. I'm not doing what you've called me to do. I'm coming to you and I'm asking you, I'm begging you to help me change and grow. So Lord, would you impassion me for lost people and would you empower me by your Holy Spirit to be a witness for Christ? And Lord, would you give me an opportunity to do that today? I mean, what a cool prayer if all of us begin praying on a daily basis before we headed out for our day, wherever we go, whatever we do, whether you're going to work, going to class, going for a jog, going to the weight room, you know, to the, to the gym, wherever, going shopping at Walmart, whatever, wherever you're going, you would be praying, Lord, would you impassion me for the lost? Would you empower me with your Holy Spirit? And would you give me an opportunity today to share Christ with someone? I think that's the kind of prayer that God would like to answer. I know you pray a lot of prayers like, why does he ever answer my prayers? I guarantee you he'll answer that one. And, and, and to follow that up, we just have to see, begin to view every interaction and conversation with someone as an opportunity to share Christ. Now, we should be able to uh, turn a conversation in 101 different ways to bring it to the gospel in a very winsome way. Not in a mean, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, Thanks for my receipt. See ya. You know, whatever. You don't want to be that guy or that girl. But you can, again, we got to pray. How, Lord, how can I be more creative in the way I turn the conversation to the gospel? You know, I was talking to somebody recently and they were just said about their wife that their wife just kind of goes into a place and goes to school, public school with her kid, drops their kid off at, at school and just says, oh yeah, this is, uh, you know, the, the Lord's good. And just, it just, just talks as if she's right at church. Like she's talking to a bunch of other Christians and, and people are like, this lady's kind of weird. She's just like talking about God, God willing and, and you know, trusting in the Lord and God's sovereign. And they're like, oh yeah, okay, where, what planet are you from, right? Just, just living a holy life, being a Christian, being radically in love with Jesus kind of person. That's sometimes all it takes to, to initiate a conversation. As the old statement, it says, Preach Christ and use words if you have to. Preach Christ and use words if you have to. In other words, live for Christ. And uh, I guarantee you that'll be a great conversation starter. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this reminder this morning of our privilege and our responsibility to take everything that we are experiencing here and learning here and taking it out into the world. Lord, how could we be those who know the good news and have experienced its impact on our lives and then remain silent? Lord, it's just not right like those four lepers in the Old Testament who found that food and it was a day of rejoicing, and yet they were convicted that they didn't tell others. And I pray that uh, we would, Lord, understand that dilemma, or that there's starving souls out there who need to hear the, the message of the truth. There's no need for them to starve, and we have the bread to provide for them. 
Whether they eat it or not, it's up to them, but at least we can show them where to find bread. And so, Lord, give us, and just enthuse us as a church to be more evangelistic, that we would see this church as a, a lighthouse, a city set on a hill, um, that we would be, truly be salt and light in this community, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.